Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon. If you've been away from us over the course of the summer, that's been our summer series. Almost smack dab in the middle of your Bible. And this morning, we're going to be reading and then studying together chapter 7, starting in verse 11, all the way through chapter 8, verse 7. So here Solomon writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Song of Songs, chapter 7, beginning in verse 11, and it is the bride here speaking. She says, Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened, and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance. And beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. Oh, that you were like a brother to me, who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, This morning has given us a lot to think about. We pray that you would Prove again to be with us as we step through it. That you yourself would, in your mercy towards us, give us the Holy Spirit who is all our hope, both to preach well 
and to receive the word preached well. Be exalted in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, one of the things I've loved most about preaching through this particular book has been watching my children squirm as I do it, and then seeing them be even more pronounced in that squirming. Uh, When Jenny and I transfer it from theory to practice at home. Uh, It's the kind of reaction you expect to get, and more it's the kind you should probably be aiming to get, parents. Uh, We should want our children to exist, to mature, grow, develop in a home that is visibly filled with Edenic love. Ideally, kids should see mom and dad loving one another. Uh, They should understand that their existence in the world is owing to the existence of a divine and particular love in the hearts of their parents. Dear ones, listen, when it comes to children, environment matters. Home life can often be determinative for life. Having Eden in a marriage where husband and wife are self-sacrificially devoted and desirous of one another isn't just for the joy of spouses. It's for the joy and the peace and the assurance and the instruction and the evangelization even of families. As you look around the world, it shouldn't take long to become burdened by the reality of broken homes, broken families, broken kids, and broken marriages. Shouldn't take long to come to believe that homes where mom and dad display and develop the love of God and his gospel culture will be much the better homes for it. I'm not saying it's foolproof by any means, but it is fairly proverbial in that where spousal love steadily burns with a flame of the Lord, two things happen. Children will tend to follow. Not only that, but children seeing that will tend to follow suit. By God's grace, they'll be conceived, and by the same grace, they'll be advantaged by a front row seat to the story of redemption in their parents' relationship. Now, today, family, we want to talk about mandrakes and monogamy. And you're like, what are mandrakes? And do I know what monogamy is? Okay. Mandrakes and monogamy, that's what we're going to be talking about and what love has to do with it. And so to our text, and our first major heading, the bride's invitation to the gifts of their love. And this is going to be covering for us chapter 7, verse 11, through chapter 8, verse 4. And to lead off, there's her initiation here of romantic pleasure. Uh, perhaps it's the continuation of where we left off a week ago, but at any rate, What's been more implicit for her is now more explicit. She wants intimacy with him. Okay? Come, my beloved. She says, verse 11, let us go out and let us lodge in outside or inside. Verse 12, there I will give my love to you. Or verse 13 She draws on him still, woos him still. Beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. Or further on in chapter 8, verse 2, 
Again, it's she who will lead him and bring him into her mother's house. It's the bride here who is offering her love and inviting his. Their lovemaking is at her initiative. And I think that's notable. Just in case you thought it had to be, intimacy and sex specifically needn't always be driven by the husband's desires. Sometimes I think we may think uh, that sex is a kind of a, a man thing, as if it's almost unbecoming of femininity, and maybe especially biblical femininity, but apparently not. Uh, indeed, I think we can say there's nothing wrong and much right in being a wife who initiates intimacy with her husband. In fact, truth be told, where one spouse is always the initiator, I suppose it can lead to this embittering sense that such intimacy is really just a one-way street. Right? There is no cross-traffic. There's no, there's no return. Where my, I think, underestimating guess is that most spouses will want more than a warm body in the bed. They want felt fire, an engaged soul, a shared desire, a deliberate passion. One does want to be wanted. And as we've seen in the song, that will usually be a two-way street where desire is constantly being fed on this steady diet of self-sacrificial love. But here then, at least in our text, just a few words to wives and perhaps wives-to-be from at least one commentator who says, nothing will be more exciting to your husband than for you to speak the way the bride does in verses 11 to 13, okay? Okay? She is, in these verses, inviting, he says, mysterious, promising, and prepared with choice fruits, old and new. May God so bless our marriages, close quote. That's the initial gift of their shared love. This time, in the song, it's she who takes the initiative in inviting him to the pleasures of their marriage bed. But now the thing that really stood out to me this week was her insistence on moving not, not beyond, but, but through those pleasures, through those pleasures to another aspect of their one flesh union. You might know it as procreation. Uh, in more or less symbolic terms, her desire and hope to conceive a child with him comes to the forefront in these verses. In what is the ideal to our Creator, she wants the consummation of their love to result in the conception of a child. She wants their lovemaking, at this time, to be babymaking. So, how do we see that in the passage? One is in this sudden and heavy emphasis on their moms. Did you see that in the passage? 
In chapter 8, verse 1, she gives what just is a strange image today, right? Her husband nursing at her mother's breasts. That's just strange. But the point is cultural. She wants this dearest fellowship with her husband. The fellowship of a sibling spouse, which we've seen they are in Christ. And so friends, listen, neither the Bible nor experience can implore us more strongly. If you're a Christian, marry a Christian. A sibling spouse. And not just a mere Christian, if there is such a thing. But as the song has shown, a legitimate lover of Jesus Christ. One being formed and shaped by the grace of the cross. Aside, aside, it appears at least that she has nursing on the brain here. And maybe you say, well, that's not enough to convince me, Brian, and I would say, I agree. And so we go to chapter 8, verse 2, where her aim, as in chapter 3, verse 4, is to bring him into her mother's house. Well, if you remember this, again, it's to signify her desire to further her family line by starting their own family line. And it comes up yet again in chapter 8, verse 5, as she reminisces on awakening her husband's love for her under the apple tree where his mother gave birth to him. The lyrics go further. There's more than just a sudden and heavy emphasis on their moms and the ideas of conceiving and birthing and nursing. There's also a sudden and heavy emphasis on fruit. Lots of fruit in these verses. And specifically, pomegranates and mandrakes. There you go. Mandrakes are also known as love apples. Love apples. So both these things, pomegranates, mandrakes, they bear biblical connotations of fertility, increasing pleasure. And of course, we cannot forget the original mandrake episode in Genesis chapter 30, the polygamous, not monogamous, the polygamous bartering done by Rachel and Leah in order to successfully, that is, conceive a child, successfully sleep with Jacob. Do you remember what the point of the exchange was between them? Mandrakes. Okay? Leah had found it easy to conceive, but Rachel was what? Barren. Rachel was barren. And so she did what she thought she had to do to procure what she thought was the secret to Leah's immense fertility. Mandrakes. Give me those mandrakes and I'll give you a night with Jacob. That's bad. Don't follow that example. Okay. So the point is, when this bride invites him out, to see whether the pomegranates are in bloom, when she bids him to just breathe in the aroma of those mandrakes, when she expresses her desire to give him the juice of her pomegranate, she's clearly hoping for springtime in her womb. It's odd then, isn't it, how we come to talk of children. 
sometimes as non-children, sometimes as non-human, sometimes as just products of conception, sometimes as accidents, or sometimes as rugrats. Think about that. Rug rodents. Sometimes as obstacles to our professional goals, as opposed to the miracles of our marital love, as the manifestation, incredibly, of creation in our union as husband and wife, as the God-given fruit of the womb. And so, dear ones, listen. The song portrays children as the divine gift of covenant love on fire. That's the ideal. A couple things then that need to come to mind for us, I think. Without in any way minimizing that ideal of Scripture, which is always the target, still we need to realize on the regular that the ideal is quite irregular. For instance, as it relates to children, let's say they're born. Circumstances are not always ideal. Forget being the, the miracle of this kind of love or the heir of this kind of parentage, the heir of this kind of home. They could have been conceived in scandal by two people who are pushing or abusing substances who won't remember each other in the morning, much less provide for them a stable home for life. The Eden that may be in our marriages is not the rule of the world in which we live. We're not in Eden anymore as things like recreational sex and abortion clinics and orphaned children and child abuse testify. When parents are giving their toddler vodka shots and capturing it on video for kicks and giggles, we are no longer in Eden. But that's not the child's fault. We always have to keep that in mind. And so I want us to be a people who can be for them, those children, what they need but haven't had. A truly loving family with Christ at the center. And at the same time, I want us to be a people who standing pat on biblical ethics, will yet radiate the gospel of grace to those who in bed with the world have been the poorer parents for it. Sinners ourselves, we need to learn how to be the Savior's beating heart for them also. Let's be a people who are prepared to care for those who are broken. Not to shun them, but to actually invite them in. Like Jesus. Okay? Things don't always go as planned. 
which, mind you, can take yet another form, though still in this vein. Uh, You see, um, children may be conceived, but they aren't always born. It's another thing to think about. Sometimes, for some spouses, they can't be conceived either. If you're younger, you may think in more certain mathematical terms, right? Speaking traditionally, sex equals baby. That's not so. Not always. No matter how long you try, no matter how deeply you love one another, no matter how deeply you desire it, that's not always so. In a fallen world, there are things like infertility. There are things like miscarriages. There are things like babies being born to healthy mothers, but who have their own diseases. So that, just as they are born into the world, just as they take their first breath, they pass away. Some of you know this, but Jenny and I have actually had to bury a baby. Sometimes, I I was thinking about it this week, sometimes I'm still just overwhelmed with grief. It comes like a flood when I least expect it. But So I only mean to say that pregnancies and deliveries are truly miracles of God and that we need to be sensitive enough to grieve with those whose Edenic love is left, we might say, unfinished. Edenic, but still touched by the effects of the fall in this specific way. It's not easy at all to grapple with the goodness of God in the throes of bitter providence. The grief lasts all the way through life and can only be relieved by constant returns to the news, the good news, of a father losing his son to the work of the cross in order to save, and not only save, but shape us for our very best. All right. That was heavy. Back to the lighter mercy of the ideal. The bride has invited her husband to pleasure in the hope of procreation. God willing, that's two gifts of their shared love. Okay? But she's really generous. We know this about her. She's really, really generous. She has a gift to spare for the others that are always around her, and that gift is called prudence, wisdom. Okay? Her love has led him home, and in chapter 8, verse 3 now, he appears poised to take it from there. Okay? She's got the reins, she's handed those reins over, he's got a hold of them now here in verse 3. As in chapter 2, verse 6, his left hand is under her head, and his right hand embraces her, exclamation point. We know what that means. And again, just there, she pauses to adjure those who seem to have always been right there, the main audience of the song, those daughters of Jerusalem. The song 
and everything in it is primarily, remember this, is primarily for young ladies who are coming into the age of love. And this, her third adjuration, is her final one. It's her parting shot to them. And while the words may be identical, um, the context and the lead up to them offer an additional angle for us. At base, it's this. It's that wise women, biblically wise women, wait for this worthwhile love. That's the wisdom in the song. Only fools rush in. Ladies, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. It's a word to delay the gratification that perhaps everything in you is clamoring to experience. But the delay is not without good reason. She's now given at least three of them. The first one was morality. Biblical morality. The second one was maturity. Biblical maturity. And I think this one has something to do with motherhood. Biblical motherhood. Or, in another word, it's about matrimony. As the divine gateway to the blessings of this love. It's romantic blessings. It's relational blessings. It's blessed responsibilities. Uh, We might say that the song is the talk. You know the talk? Hopefully, if you're a little bit older, you've had this conversation. Okay, anyway. We might say the song is the talk, okay, given to younger girls by one who is a life stage ahead of them, at least. In fact, if you look at chapter 8, verse 2, what do we find? But a basis for this. Who taught this bride, this great bride, about the things of God-glorifying spousal love. Who taught her? Her mommy. Yeah, her mom. Mom matters, as one put it, in the matters of love. And what's more, as this bride is not the mom of these daughters of Jerusalem, I think we can say that alongside mom, older women matter, certainly in the matters of love but also in the matters of life as a woman in pursuit of Jesus. And Titus, chapter 2, places that directly in the context of a local church. Quote, Older women, it says, are to teach what is good, and so train the younger women to what? Love their husbands, is what it says. And children. It's the first thing it says. Love their husbands and their children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. So moms and spiritual moms, you have a ministry to prepare for and execute with the younger women. And younger ladies, listen, it is okay 
Like, it is okay for you to have discipling relationships that are peer-to-peer discipling relationships. And no doubt, uh, if they are sound, if those peers are sound, they can be of immense help in your walk with Christ, even where they themselves have not yet walked in those shoes. But the Bible wants you to recognize that you need much more than something like a peer-led Bible study. You need women in your life who are older than you, experienced more than you, lived the Word longer than you, and ideally have covenanted to love and care for you, here's the key, according to every jot and tittle of Scripture. A biblically seasoned wife, lover, and mother has more prudence to offer you at the level of real talk than your single 19-year-old sweetmate who, to no fault of her own, can little speak to what she's little known well. Get yourself in a good church with godly women who will spiritually mother you and train you how to mother, how to be a lover, how to be a wife like this one. Okay. So much for the bride's invitation to the gifts of their love, pleasure, procreation, and prudence. Let's come to the last few verses here, verses 5 to 7, and the bride's tribute to the gift of that love, their love. It seems to me that her message to the daughters concerns the godly order of things. Or, if you're familiar with the old rhyme, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes, wait for it, sex, and then so-and-so with the baby carriage. Okay, it's a bit of a remix, but you get it. And what she comes to now is not just her right order, because she has done things rightly, but in it, her unrivaled desire and priority. She returns to the gift that is their love. She's going to say, in essence, don't ever lose sight of one another. Don't ever lose sight of the covenant you've made. Don't ever lose sight of the wonder that ought to be your love. Feature that love in and out, always and above everything else. Feature that. And so in verse 5, she says, who is that coming up from the wilderness? Leaning on her beloved. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, I mean, she's, she's alluding to the Exodus. She's using Exodus language to remind us that their marriage is tied somehow to the redemptive drama of Scripture. Their relationship is a reflection, in other words, of the grace of God that overwhelms all enmity with peace and love and harmony 
in Jesus Christ. The husband has, in a sense, redeemed her and taken her to himself and loved her so very well, so like Christ, that she feels compelled to give the picture that she does. And it's not just of heavenly sex. It's of heavenly support. Leaning. As we tried to see throughout, the biblical locus and primary focus of Edenic love, listen, is not, is not, is not in cultivating a spicy marriage bed. So much the focus of our culture. Minus the marriage, just the bed. But it is in cultivating a Savior-exalting marriage. How easy it is to lose sight of the gospel forest for the trees. Spouses, how is your marriage? Your marriage. Is it reflective of redeeming grace? Does it look like a coming up out of the wilderness with her leaning on you because you've loved her so very well? What, if anything, have you let obscure that reflection? It doesn't have to be bad things necessarily. I believe it's actually Tim Keller. It was Tim Keller who said, spouses often lose love for one another by giving so much of it to their children. Well, children aren't bad. You already said that. He says, they prioritize their children to the degree that they forget about one another. Their kids absorb all of their affections, even the affections that are intended just for one another. They absorb all that for a couple of decades, and then once they're out of the house, it's like the spouses, they don't even recognize each other. They hardly know each other. They haven't talked in like 20 years. They haven't kept the primary human relationship. Primary. Trust me, it will not scar your kids to tell them, listen, I love you with all the love an earthly father, in my case, can muster to the edge of the multiverse and back. But, and I tell them this frequently, don't I? The love I have for your mother is further still. Almost beyond words to a singular cross and back. That's further than the multiverse. My relationship with her, it's like gospel. Oh, brothers, are we leading in that? Are we leading in a love that to our dying days has our brides leaning upon us so sweetly? No, we are not her chief support. But the question needs to be asked. Are we, from day to day, a Christic one for her? If you need a vision, because we're big about vision, okay? If you need a vision for your marriage, it's this. 
It's verse 5. It's mature and maturing intimacy of relationship. Relationship. Not sex, even though that is at the very center of the song. But relationship between the husband and the wife. And the rest of verse 5 is a bridge to think about it further in verses 6 and 7. It seems she's reminiscing on the time, an interesting place, where their love began under that apple tree. But really, she's doing that only to give us what is to me the most potent part of the whole poem. All that we've gone through in the song concerning their love, she wants them to hold that fast throughout the course of their life together. She discerns rightly there will be obstacles to our love. And so she does her best to just crush all those obstacles right here. She begins verse 6, Set me as a seal upon your heart. No other woman, not even our children, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Right? That is, she, she wants him to continue in his particular love towards her. Again, it set me as a seal. She wants to be the, the singular object of his affections and his efforts, his heart and on his arm. She wants exclusivity, privately and publicly. Let it be true and deep. Let it be known and constant. That, I am yours. And you are mine. And then, she roots that in the strength of their true love. Love, she says, is strong. Strong as what? Strong as death. Jealousy is fierce. Fierce as what? As the grave. Friends, there is only one sovereign greater than death. Otherwise, death is universally strong. In this world, everything moves toward death. So that what she's intimating is that their love is a kind of sovereign. Once you're in that, there's no getting out of it. Monogamy. There's no getting out of it. And to be quite clear, she doesn't want to get out of it. That's the jealousy part here. There is a possessiveness that comes about in the union of marriage that produces a righteous jealousy that she is really, really glad to have, but she'd rather not need to feel. And so she presses the imagery of their love further. What she say in verse 7? Maybe my favorite verse now in the whole song. She says, its flashes are flashes of fire. I'll embarrass Ian and Scarlett here, I think. They got a wedding coming up in a few weeks. This may be how I lead off. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. Now that's strong. Many waters, verse 7, cannot quench love, neither can floods 
drown it. Dear ones, I don't know of a stronger depiction of the love that's supposed to be in our marriages than that. The love they share as husband and wife in Christ is like a flame gotten from the burning bush that no flood can quench. Their marriage is held to by a blazing ember siphoned off from the everlasting flame that is God and His love. we we got to learn to talk about love like that, husbands and wives. Just think on that. The very flame of the Lord. She's saying their love is holy. Take off those sandals. This is holy ground. She's saying it's, it's a chip off the eternal block. And that it is thus indestructible and unquenchable in nature. If you put that flame under the flood waters in Noah's day, it would burn right through it. And, just to be boastful about it, send up a smoke signal to boot. Spouses, is this how you view the love you share? Please, please see. It's endurance. This love's endurance is not first about what you do to preserve it. But what you believe about it. The flame of Christian love, particularized in marriage, is what it is. As one put it, strong as death and Godfire. That's how I'm going to start. Strong as death and Godfire. Okay? So, if it ever appears to be suffering, if that love ever appears to be suffering in your marriage, be assured, it actually is not suffering, though you may be. So that all that's needed for a recovery is a repentant insistence on remembering what's already there. Amen. Alas, it's trusting and taking God at His word again and again and again and again. I went camping once. I know that's a surprise to most of you. I think it's only once. Slept outdoors. No tent. I was a college student. Just a chair and a fire. And the cold of a dewy night. So that though I started at a good distance from the flames, I woke up almost in the fire. I woke up in the coals because it had gotten so cold. And spouses, what I want to say there is this. That flame of your love, it's not gone. It's not gone. You might just be a bit removed from it. So that all you need to do is move closer and closer throughout that night. You can still be warmed by the very flame of the Lord. Now, if you're still doubtful about that, I'd have you say one more thing. That as its flashes are the very flame of the Lord, the ability to stoke it 
lay in the power of his hands, and therefore also in the liberty of your prayers. Are you worried about it? If you are, pray for it. Ask the Lord to fuel it up again. Fire it up again. It is His flame. Talk to Him about it. It's His gift. Don't be so despairing in your marriage that you forget that every good and perfect gift comes down from above. And that God loves to give good gifts to His children. Speaking of which, see the clothes. She says, if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. So love is an inestimable treasure that cannot be bought, but again, only given. Their love, the love that we have studied throughout the song, is priceless. That's what she's saying. It's priceless. Nothing can match its value. Nothing can match its legacy. So, what are we casting? Husbands and wives. What are we casting? Singles. As you move into that season, perhaps. What are we casting as most valuable to others? What are we casting as most valuable to our children? Or let me ask it like this. To keep from being utterly despised by God, what should be the priority in our lives as husband and wife? How about this? How about the most precious thing? The greatest inheritance that we can leave our children, the church, the world, will not be our estates. It will not be our politics. It will not be our attributes. It will be our marriages. It will be the love that we shared and showed as husband and wife. You say, that's really big. And I'm like, yeah, go read Ephesians 5 and Revelation 19. It's about Jesus. It'll be what the song is testimony in our own marriages to the covenantal love of Jesus Christ. I want you to have a guess this morning at the book of the Bible most commentated on since the days of Jesus. Any guesses? It's very likely the Song of Songs. Not Romans. Not Genesis. The Song of Songs. Why would that be? Why would that be? But that in some part, human beings, listen, I know this is going to be like mind-blowing, but in some great part, human beings are attracted to a great love story. The tenor of your marriage, friends, speaks a louder word than you could ever imagine. People are listening. People are looking. Is it resplendent 
with gospel themes? Is it rich with the love of God in Christ? Unbelieving friend, I'll tell you, there is no louder love than that. There is no greater love than that, than the risen Jesus coming into this wilderness to die on a cross to redeem a bride for Himself, to bring a people up out of the wilderness of sin and into eternal union with God. Will you not lean upon Christ today? Let Him be all your support for salvation. You've got to do that because there is no other support when it comes to salvation. Nothing you can offer comes close to matching the value of His love. So I just adjure you this morning to awaken to that. Awaken to it. Let Him set His seal upon your heart. He will give you a life that no flood of judgment can ever quench. He will give you a love that is stronger, not just as strong, but stronger than death in the grave. Only lean your soul upon Him, and He will save you from your sins. All of them. Beloved, when it comes to mandrakes and monogamy, love, it turns out, has a lot to do with it. And that holds above just the the marital plane to the simply Christian one. It also is about being, and by God's grace, bearing a people for Christ. So, uh, may the bride's passion be our very own. Who is that coming up from the wilderness? Leaning on her beloved. Let's be a people who lean on Christ. Let's be a people who, by that love, give people a front row seat to the grand story of redemption. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love. We ask that you would continue to help us grow into it. It is immeasurable. It has no real dimension. It's eternal and infinite. Help us to continue to grow into it, we pray. In Jesus' name.